0: Folk, it's good to be together for the latest Generation podcast. And again, this is a bit like Desert Island Discs. Not many people appear twice, but in the space of a few months, we have a repeat guest. And the repeat guest is my friend. Reveal yourself. Tell the public who you are.
1: Well, David, I think the last time I checked, I was Andy Bannister. So I think that's that's who I am. And I guess I committed such horrendous errors last time I was on the show. You had to get me back to see if I could uh, improve on them.
0: Not at all. You were so fun and entertaining and eloquent that we could not ignore you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. Flattery will get you. Well, we'll see how far.
0: Okay, (laughs) great. Well, one of the reasons uh, Andy wears lots and lots of hats and one of them is he's the director of Solace which as everybody knows is for public engagement, public square debate, apologetics. He's got lots of other interests and he is Dr. Andy Bannister and his PhD, it's a real one, is in Islamic studies. So um, most of you will know that we are in the middle or a significant way through the Islamic feast of Ramadan, and we're going to begin a conversation about uh, Ramadan, and we'll maybe move into talking about wider issues regarding Islam. Andy, could you just explain to our listeners what Ramadan is?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, David. So, the kind of, uh, in a nutshell, the answer is that Islam is a religion based very much on on practice, more 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 so than belief. And there are five practices that define the life of the religiously faithful Muslim. Uh, there's the Shahada, that's the the the, the, uh, the confession of faith. They make when they become a Muslim. You say that you believe there is one God and Muhammad is His prophet um then there's the uh, attempt to pray five times a day so prayer is a big part of uh, muslim life and then the third uh, pillar of islam the third practice that muslims will try and carry out is uh, fasting during ramadan and so during the month of ramadan uh, muslims will try to uh, abstain uh, from food and if they're uh, taking it very seriously also from drink and also from tobacco and from from sex uh, between the hours of sun up and uh, and sundown, and they believe that in so doing, uh, they're not just merely carrying out the, the command of uh, of Muhammad. They are also there's a kind of spiritual blessing uh, to be gained through that. So it's a third of the kind of five pillars uh, of Islam. The other two, just for completion, are uh, the attempt to go on pilgrimage to Mecca uh, at some point during their life, and then to give a percentage of their their income uh, away to the poor. Uh, but yeah, Ramadan right there is one of the key practices that
0: define life for a faithful Muslim. Okay, so for your average Muslim living in Glasgow, Edinburgh, e., Aberdeen, whatever, what what would the day look like?
1: Well, it's interesting actually that things have changed as immigration has spread uh, Islam out around the world. Because traditionally, what it looked like is that uh, from the moment that it was light enough that you could tell the difference between a black piece of thread and a white piece of thread. That marked the start of the day. You would abstain, as I say, from food and drink, uh, from sex and from tobacco, until it got dark enough that you could no longer tell the difference uh, between those two bits of thread. Now, of course, with Muslims in different time zones, it tends to be more centralised, and the hours are more standardised. And so for a Muslim living in Glasgow, Edinburgh, London, uh, wherever if they're faithful and they're practicing then from, yeah, sort of set time in the morning uh, they'll try and abstain from those things they'll try and perhaps be a bit more faithful in their prayers and so on and so forth and then they'll end the day, particularly if they're living in a, a family setting uh, with a big meal at the end of the day and then at the end of Ramadan actually a big, a big feast to celebrate the, uh, the end of it um, so yeah, so for Muslims right now, particularly in, in in countries where it's warmer, whether or not you define Scotland as warmer is a as a question we could debate. Um, you know, Ramadan can be quite tough actually, um, because if you're living in a sort of country where the hours of daylight are longer and it's warm and it's hot and so forth, it's uh, it's more difficult. You know, if you're living at the North Pole, not so hard.
0: Okay, so you'd have a fairly substantial breakfast before the sun rose in the morning, and you'd have to wait. Would there be? prayers? Would you attend mosque more than, uh, than usual?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, and again, a lot of this, uh, it's very hard, uh, David, because a lot depends on the Muslim in question. It's very easy to say, you know, Muslims sure. will do this. Some will, some won't. I mean, I'm at the laxer end of the scale. Uh, you know, when my, my wife had a, a colleague some years ago who was married to a Muslim, very, very the uh, liberal end. Uh, his one concession, his one concession to Ramadan is he would give up bacon sandwiches for Ramadan. <laughs> um, so that's at the extreme end of the scale. At the other end, yeah, you have Muslims who will literally go to mosque every day and uh, and pray, do the more additional, uh, do more of the additional praying, try and spend time together with other Muslims, become a lot more religiously devout uh, during this month. And then you've got a whole batch in the in the middle as uh, as well. The Muslim community really is very very diverse. Um, but most Muslims I know will at least try and become to some degree religiously uh, more engaged uh, and more practising during the month of Ramadan.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, folk don't appreciate that Islam is not monolithic, that whilst it's not parallel to Christianity, there are certain similarities. So, for example, a Christian, in the broadest sense of term view, of Christmas, uh, would be from, you know, attending service, church on Sunday, or Christmas Day, rather, um, to really just, a mere token observation of a a Christmas card with an angel on it and everything in between, I guess in Islam it would be exactly the same. Very
1: much the same, but perhaps uh, another analogy around Ramadan, David, I found helpful is to think about Lent. You know, so in some Christian traditions, you know, there still is that tradition that during Lent you, you give things up, you live more simply, um, perhaps you pray a lot more, you, you prepare yourself to head into that season. You know, Good Friday is more of a sombre occasion because you're commemorating Jesus' death, and then Easter Sunday is the big celebration. So particularly perhaps in more liturgical uh, traditions protects particularly perhaps in the Eastern Church, um, there's still more of that sense of, of, of Lent, is that period of, of simplifying, even though, if you don't fast for the full 40 days. So, so Lent and Easter might be an analogy. And the other thing I found interesting over the years is actually. I always find it fascinating to reflect on the fact that fasting is something, perhaps particularly in the evangelical church, we've forgotten. Um, and I've, you know, one of the things I've appreciated about my Muslim friendships and Muslims over the years is, while I do not believe Islam is true, it could still be a wake-up call to remind us that as Christians, we can sometimes be tempted, you know, to get a little bit lax uh, about things. So the Bible does commend fasting. The early church practiced fasting. Here uh, in the Western church, I think we've become perhaps a little bit more hedonistic and, uh, and perhaps sort of lost touch with some of those traditional spiritual disciplines. And every year around Ramadan, that reminds me of like, mm, that's interesting. I wonder whether, whether, even though they don't know Jesus, our Muslim friends have still been rem- reminding us of something that we should perhaps, uh, we have perhaps
0: forgotten. Uh, sure, but again, would you not agree that the principles behind a Christian theology of fasting or practice of fasting is very different to an Islamic? The Islamic would be basically to build up merit, to score points, whereas a Christian philosophy of fasting would be very different, would perhaps even be the exact opposite.
1: Well, it's very interesting you, you raise that question, David, because I think there's a pattern across. Uh, when we look at Islam and Christianity across the board, that Islam will use the same words as Christians use, but the underlying theology is very different. So, absolutely, that's the case with fasting. Fasting functions very, very differently uh, in uh, in Islam. It is, as you said, there, it's it's to gain sort of merit or blessing. There are there are Islamic traditions that say that you can score points. Is is perhaps sort of a little bit too, almost not treating it seriously enough. But that that kind of idea that you could score, you know, sort of blessing with, with with Allah. Whereas for Christianity, it tends to be more. I think about about trying to reflect perhaps on our relationship with God. More if we're perhaps praying more intensely. If there's something we're very concerned about, we're praying. Uh, we might add fasting into the mix. But that that use of different words to mean different things goes across the board, right the way down from God. You know, the word God is used in both religions, but it means something very different to Muslims and to Christians right the way down. So yeah, whenever we're engaging with our Muslim friends, if we hear them using using a word that we think we know, it's always worth asking our Muslim friends, what do you mean by that word? Um, and so if you have a Muslim friend, neighbor or colleague, they're fasting right now, take it as an opportunity to ask them, to say, hey, I understand you You know, might be fasting for Ramadan. Tell me, why, why are you doing that? What does that mean to you? And so uh, that may well open up opportunities for you to share as a Christian your understanding is different. And uh, yeah. yeah, if you have Muslim friends, ask them why they're doing it.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I've found that Muslims are very happy to explain their faith. In fact, they are delighted when someone from a Christian tradition basically shows a semblance of interest in spirituality.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, and, and Ramadan opens all kinds of doors. I remember; I think it was uh, it was either last year or the year before. Um, maybe it was last year. I was down in down in London uh, around Ramadan, and uh, I was in a taxi from the airport to the event where I was speaking. And there was something in the in the taxi that I figured out that the, the gentleman was probably a Muslim. And so I said, oh, you know, so I sort of said, "Oh, are you by any chance a Muslim?" He said he was, and then I said, "Oh, it was uh, you finding it a bit tough." You know, right now uh, being it's Ramadan and obviously it's a very very hot week, and his face lit up. Went, oh, you you know that it's Ramadan. I went absolutely and that opened up this whole conversation because he was you know deeply interested that I knew about Islam and before we knew it we got into my PhD and all kinds of things and it led up led up to me having an opportunity to gently say why despite the fact that I'd studied massive amounts about it I wasn't a Muslim and uh, all from the fact that I happened to know it was Ramadan and I wondered if this guy's struggling driving a taxi you know all day long in the heat when he can't drink anything. Um, yeah, so there's lots yeah. of opportunities for spiritual
0: conversations. Absolutely, it's almost a two-way process because most Christians do not take the time to understand Islam, and as I say, they love to talk about it. And you know, the opposite is true also. The most Muslims do not understand Christianity; they just see the whole of Western culture as Christians. So, so when you actually begin to speak about biblical Christianity, they they really engage and they're interested in it. Is that what you find?
1: I think very much that's the uh, that's the case. I mean, on the first part of that question, David, I I found over the years, whenever I've taken an interest in Islam to Muslim friends or neighbors or colleagues, you know, it's paid massive dividends. And I say to Christians who are nervous about Islam, it's fine to be nervous about Islam and to be worried about a whole range of things. But when you're thinking about the individual Muslim friend or neighbor or colleague, simply by taking an interest in what they believe, asking questions, that's not affirming what they believe, it's just taking an interest in the same way you could for your Buddhist neighbor, your Jewish neighbor, your humanist neighbor. Um, but you'll find it opens up lots of opportunities for spiritual conversations if you take an interest. And then I think for all the Muslims, you're dead right. Most Muslims have not met a Christian. Uh, they haven't talked at length to a Christian. So they'll either have stereotypical ideas, they picked up secondhand or at the mosque, or worse still, from uh, from social media, or they'll have no ideas at all whatsoever. And I remember a, a friend of mine down south a couple of years ago plucked up the courage to invite a Muslim colleague from, from work. He'd they know, they, he known him for about 10 years to, to dinner. And they had an amazing evening with him and his wife and, and really actually quite in-depth conversation about Jesus at the end. But my, my friend said he was really struck by, at the end of the meal, his Muslim colleague said to him, He said, I have so enjoyed this evening. He said, You know, my wife and I have lived in the UK for, for almost 30 years. This is the first time we've ever been inside a Christian home. And my friend was struck by the just the astounding statement that someone could be in, you know, in the UK for 30 years, never been inside a Christian home. And then of course he felt guilty, it had taken him 10 years to pluck up the courage to ask his 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 friend around. So to yeah. so Christians listening to this, please, if you've got friends, neighbor, if you've got neighbors, colleagues who are who are Muslim reach out take the opportunity because there's so there's such a hunger there i think and uh, i have uh, i've had robust conversations with muslims but i've always found a you know a huge interest there in jesus and we need to reach beyond our comfort zones as as god's people
0: great ramadan is a very social occasion it's you know again someone described to me recently as it's like having a christmas dinner every night when you break the fast So during this time of lockdown, how will our Muslim friends be finding it?
1: Yeah, just an interesting question. I haven't um, I haven't directly asked any of my Muslim contacts that uh, that question. But um, but yeah, I think I think it's going to be it's going to be a challenge in the same way that it would be if lockdown happened over Christmas. Uh, for us. The Muslim community as well, I I say one of the other things I'm always struck by with the Muslim community is they do community very well. Sometimes in our churches, we don't always do community as well. And I've had many friends who who were Muslims who are now Christians who say one of the struggles when they become Christians often is the fact that, you know, they had this really close-knit community and they, they became Christians. And, you know, you meet together at church on Sunday, shake hands at the door and don't see each other for a week. Um, so I think it's going to be tough. What I would say actually is if you've got Muslim friends or neighbours, you know, what a great conversation starter with that question to say, hey, how are you doing? Because it must be quite tough to, to not be able to get together with all of your community. How are you finding it? And again, I suspect that having showing that you thought about that and you care might be a conversation opener uh, if you've got a Muslim neighbour or, or someone that you see in your uh, in your community. But yeah, it is going to be tough. And the other reason it's going to be tough as well, and this may, you know, don't go too far down this direction. Let's put a tangent we can come back to, David, is of course Muslims, like Christians and all people of faith, have to wrestle through the question of what is God doing right now? Um, and as Christians, I think we've got some great resources in the Bible to talk about God and, and suffering and evil. I would say, having studied the Quran for 20, 25 years, there is not so much. Islam doesn't really know what to do with the problem of suffering and the problem of evil. So any Muslim who's thinking about, you know, where is Allah in this is going to struggle because Islam traditionally has never really addressed that question. Allah is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Um, That doesn't really work practically when your family is, is suffering. So I think Muslims are asking themselves some questions about faith potentially right now as well, some of them.
0: Now, going back to Ramadan, can you tell us a bit about the origins of it? I know it's a whole month. Uh, This year is 23rd April to 23rd May. Tell us why Ramadan came about. It's the ninth month in the Islamic calendar. What's so significant about the ninth month?
1: Well, here you ask an amazing uh, question, David. I mean, a bit of background for people who are not necessarily aware. Um, The Islamic calendar is slightly different to the calendar that we use in the West. The Islamic calendar uh, follows is a lunar uh, calendar, not a, a solar calendar uh, like we follow in the West, which is why, if you notice, Ramadan moves each year. It's not always at the same point in the year um, because their calendar is slightly different. So it slides around across the, across the year. So Ramadan is the ninth month of the Muslim calendar. What happened when Islam began back in the, in the seventh century, back, at, uh, back in Arabia? When Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was preaching and teaching what became Islam, he brought over quite a lot of ideas and traditions from pre-Islamic Arabia. So the pilgrimage is a good example. Uh, we know uh, historically, we actually know from the Quran, if you read it carefully, that the, uh, the pagan Arabs were, were used to going on pilgrimage to Mecca uh, already. And so he kind of Islamicized that. And it looks like, as far as we could tell, that fasting falls into the same category. There was already an understanding in Arabian culture that uh, that this time of the year was a time when you fasted. And so I think as part of his desire to appeal to the pagan Arabs when he was trying to unify the Arabian Peninsula, Uh, when he was first preaching what became Islam, I think Mohammed landed upon the idea of having a month of fasting, taking the month the Arabs already knew, and bringing it into Islam. So his his origins are actually older uh, than Islam. And uh, so that may surprise a few people, but uh, to to, historians and those who sort of studied the Quran, that's not entirely surprising, although many Muslims may not be aware of that.
0: And tell us the connection between the revelation of the Quran and Ramadan.
1: Well, one of the connections, uh, one of the main connections between the the revelation of the Quran is that, again, for those who don't know the backstory, uh, so Muhammad. Uh, the uh, the founder of Islam was born, as far as we could tell uh, historically, in about 570 AD. And according to the Islamic traditions, the uh, the Islamic writings, uh, it was around about AD around about 610 AD that Gabriel uh, first appears to him and reveals to him the first few portions uh, of the Quran. And then, for the next 23 years until his death in 632, Gabriel came back to time and time again, revealed more of the Quran. To him, um, but that first occasion when the first uh, verses of the Quran were uh, recited uh, traditionally is pegged to the uh, the twenty seventh month day of the month of uh, of Ramadan. It's known as the uh, the night of power, and yeah. it's when the Quran was first sent down uh, from heaven uh, down to down to earth. Um, and yeah, so, yeah. it's considered to be a pretty auspicious night.
0: Okay, can you unpack the Night of Power, which incidentally is Tuesday nineteenth of May this year? What is the significance of that for Muslims and what can yeah. these Christians do to engage with them? Well, you said t- you
1: asked me earlier about you know how Muslims um, you know celebrate and, and keep Ramadan and one of the things that some uh, Muslims who are at the more pious end of that spectrum, Will do is they'll try to recite through the whole Quran um, over the month of uh, of Ramadan, and there are particularly some verses that are you know often connected with the with the, with the, with, the, with the night of power. But one of the things, and where things get interesting, is there are some traditions, not in the Quran, but from later Islamic theology, that seem to suggest to Muslims that um, that that the night of power is a night when sort of you know for, I suppose heaven and earth are closer when Allah draws nearer to his creation, where maybe there might just possibly be a chance that you might hear from God in some way or have some kind of sort of spiritually charged encounter. And so there is, Muslims tend to, or those who are at the more experiential end, certainly be a little bit more open uh, kind of spiritually on or around that night because they're already kind of sort of seeking and yearning and, and reaching out. And for Christians, I think, our response to that is, you think of Paul in Acts 17, at uh, the altars of the unknown God there in Athens, He doesn't go in all guns blazing and criticize them for their paganism. He goes, ah, you know, the God that you are worshiping is unknown. Let me tell you about that. And I think a lot of Christians uh, over the years have figured out, rather than saying to Muslims, don't be daft, you know, this is all wrong, going, hey, look, you know, you're, you're reaching out, you're yearning for a connection with God that I don't think is there in Islam, but that desire for a connection with God is very real because God had put it there. Let me tell you how you can meet that person that you're seeking. And, uh, and using it as an opportunity for witness. And there are lots, David, of organizations, actually, lots of Christian organizations that actually have set up prayer calendars for Ramadan where you can commit to pray for Muslims and the Muslim world uh, over the next kind of, uh, you know, so over the month of Ramadan for the next kind of 30 days or so. And uh, the best way to find that, if you are listening to this, if you just go to Google and type in 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world, there's a couple of big ones and there's lots of mission agencies doing it. And if, yeah, if you feel... You'd really like to sort of pray into some of this. There are some great prayer calendars that you can kind of print out, stick in the front of your Bible and pray. And, um, and it'd be amazing if there are you know, some Muslims who you know, are seeking Allah but end up finding Jesus. a uh, misquote, I almost quote the title of the book by a friend of mine, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. That's the story of Nabil Qureshi, uh, who wasn't on the night of power, but he was a young man who was desperate to encounter God as a Muslim. And he met God, it just turned out that God was Jesus, which wasn't what he was surprising, expecting.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the things we want to do during, uh, you know, this time is our generation network. We want them to pray for uh, the Islamic community during the night of power. So uh, another thing I want to uh, talk to you about is, um, the I was reading on a, a Muslim website that, they say that Ramadan is an opportunity for devotion, reflection, and celebration of the mercy and love of Allah. What I want mm. to unpack with you, Andy, is this whole idea of the love of Allah. I did a little bit of homework because my kind of knowledge told me that Allah uh, is very, Allah, of course, is the Aramaic for for God, but very different to you know Jehovah as revealed in the Bible, that Allah was not relational. However, I read this concept of the love of Allah, but <laughs> it seems to me that yeah, he does love, but it comes with conditions. Can can you unpack that for us, Andy?
1: Yeah, and um, the simple answer is uh, that's absolutely correct, uh, David. I mean, what's interesting—you you start with the Bible, of course. The idea of, of God being a God of love is something the Bible talks about hundreds of times, and perhaps most succinctly in First John four sixteen, where the Bible says, "God is love." And so, for the Bible, God is love is not something God does; so much as something God is. And to get all theological honours for a moment, on you for a moment, because the God of the Bible is triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't need to create anything in order to be, be loving. The, the, the Godhead can always be this loving communion even before anything was was brought into existence. So the, the God of the Bible is saturated in love. Turn to the Quran and things get quite different. The Quran is actually very, very reticent about talking about Allah and love. In fact, the main Arabic word for love, ahaba only occurs, is only used with, uh, with God as, as the subject just 42 yeah. times. And interestingly, of those, 23 are negative. So that's telling you who Allah doesn't uh, love. He doesn't love the unbelievers. Striking one for Christians in Surah 6, verse 141, we're told he doesn't love the prodigal, which is interesting. You think of Jesus' uh, parable of the prodigal son. And then the other 19 occurrences are conditional. So you're told that, uh, you know, God loves the doers of good, or Surah sixty one, Allah loves those who fight in his way, and so on and, and so forth. The main thing you notice as a Christian reader of the Quran, there is absolutely nowhere where the Quran talks about an unconditional love for humanity. And in Your fact, Greece, in other uh, words, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And as the, as the very well known Pakistani Muslim scholar Daoud Rabbah uh, kind of wrote a, wrote a whole book looking at God's characteristics in Islam. And let me just read you what he said. He said, there is not a single verse in the Quran that speaks of God's unconditional love for mankind. The Quran does not say that God loves all men. Um, but you think of as for Christians, you know, John three sixteen for God so loved the world, or Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Um, that idea is, is missing. And in fact, Daouda Rabbah goes on to say it's probably better not to use the word love. The word that is sometimes translated in English editions of the Quran as love. He thinks it would be better translated as likes or approves of. God approves of this kind of behavior. God doesn't approve of this kind of behavior. Uh, you know, the, the idea of the love of God that you find in the Bible, uh, Muslim scholars, I think,
0: don't think is there in the Quran. And I would I would agree with them. Yeah, because I read another quote that says, "If you follow the Quran and the Sunnah, uh, Allah will love you." You know, you contrast that with the Bible. You know, it's why we were yet sinners that Christ died for. us. Christ died for the ungodly. And, Absolutely, you know, as you say, John, since so I think God so loving uh, the world. What about another? Then the attribute that we most you know often associate with Allah is mercy. He is the most merciful mm-hmm. one. Again, can you unpack uh, to our listeners what mercy means in Islam?
1: Yeah, well, the interesting question is, we need to be a little bit careful straight away. I talked earlier about the way that uh, the way that words are uh, you know are used differently uh, in the in Islam, and there's a verse in the uh, interesting. There is a verse of the Quran where it actually uh, warns you to be careful or the most merciful one uh, will judge you and send you into hell, or words to that affect. So it's interesting that the, the title, the merciful one uh, used of Allah in the Quran may not necessarily mean what we what we think it means is the first thing. Secondly, I want to say to people, there's a big difference between between mercy and love. Um, sometimes we, we collapse those two things together, but they are quite different. I mean, a, a good analogy to, to demonstrate that would be where I live, on the outskirts of Dundee, where we live in the countryside, we have fields backing onto the house, and occasionally, you know, small furry visitors will make their way into our garage. And uh, I used to sort of kill them at the first time. I used to get you know mouse traps that, that dispatch them, but then the the, uh, the children and my wife protested, and we then got these humane mouse traps, uh, which are quite clever because you could trap the mouse, take it out in the field, release it, and then it can go back into the house the next night. It's like the Great Escape in reverse. Um, but by using these humane mouse traps, I'm showing mercy to the mouse. You know, I'm not killing it. I don't love the mouse. I don't want any kind of relationship with the thing. Um, in other words, I have been merciful. I have been the merciful one towards the uh, the, the rodent, but I don't love it. So love is not the same as uh, as mercy. I think is a crucial idea. And then again, that the third thing, David, just on this briefly, I think even the mercy that's seen in the Quran is largely. Is largely conditional. Is if you behave a certain way. I think that that quote used a moment ago. And if you keep Allah's commandments, then He may forgive you. He may show you mercy. But there's something problematic there because I think there's something inherently about the nature of forgiveness that forgiveness, by its very nature, is is free. And if I, you know, upset my wife in some way, if I hurt her, if I say something stupid or unkind, and I then say to her, "Look, honey, I've been. I'm so sorry. I said that. Will you forgive me?" And she says to me, absolutely, Andy, I forgive you. You just need to take the garbage out for the next six weeks, clean the kitchen floor once a week and buy me chocolates for the next month on Tuesdays. She hasn't forgiven me. That's an economic transaction. She's named her price and I'm paying it. Forgiveness by its very nature is, is free because the cost is borne by the one who's been offended. If she genuinely forgives me, she's the one who's going to bear the price for not reminding me of what I said. And it's the same in Christianity, of course. In the Bible, it's God who bears the, the, the cost, the, the price of our forgiveness through Jesus and the cross because forgiveness is always free to the recipient and it's always costly for the one giving it. I, that pattern is missing uh, in the Quran and I think there's there's something very significantly different, therefore.
0: Yeah. Now, I know that, that during this lockdown, you have not been idle and for the last few months, You've been working on a book. Can you tell us a little bit about this, and when can we expect to see the light of day?
1: Yeah, so exactly. Um, I have been kind of busy during during lockdown. I've got no excuse not to not to write. I have a slightly notorious relationship with with deadlines. In fact, I, I love the uh, line attributed to the to the late science fiction uh, comedy writer Douglas Adams. Uh, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who once said, "He said, I love deadlines. I uh, I love the whooshing sound they make as they go past." And um, unfortunately, I don't have that excuse right now. So now I'm writing hard. The book is going to be called "The Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God," so this fits very well with what we've just been discussing. And um, it really grew out of the fact that I I found I came across so many people, uh, both non Christians and sadly, I think some Christians, assuming that uh, you know Yahweh, the God of the Bible and Allah, the God of the Quran, are essentially the same. And all of my study of the Quran led me to a quite different conclusion. Uh, so I think finally, rather than grumble about it, I thought the best thing to do is write a, write a book. And the book's actually going to use the, that as part of a much bigger question of, you know, do all, do all religions lead, uh, lead to the same God? And then we're going to use Islam and Christianity as a test case. And at the heart of the book is a bit of what we were just talking about now with the question of love and mercy, of saying that, you know, when someone says they believe in God, It's not enough to go, oh, fantastic, I also believe in God. What you want to be asking is tell me about the kind of God that you believe in. Um, You know, if you and I are talking, perhaps discussing politics, and we agree that there's one president of the USA, and and you announce that you think it's Donald Trump, and I announce that I think it's Donald Duck, we might have a very fascinating discussion about who might be the most effective president. Um, But clearly we don't believe in the same president. And it's my thesis, something similar is going on, certainly with the Quran and the Bible. I think many Muslims are, are yearning to, to connect with the, with the real God, but I think the God of the Bible, the Bible the God of the Quran, are very different gods indeed. So about halfway through the book, it's going to, yeah, almost literally, almost exactly halfway through. Um, the manuscript is due to the publisher, uh, which is IVP, at the end of September, and they're uh, publishing it in March. So I've been thinking about this one and writing and sort of speaking about this one, David, for the past 10 years. So it's um it's exciting to finally get it into into in, excuse me into
0: print. Yeah, I, I guess the big problem for you will be what to leave out, not what to put in, because you've you know you've done so much thinking. Just, just like a quick um, kind of parallel to that, what would you say to a Jew? Is is the God of Judaism the same as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that well, a there's a
1: there, there's a Well, it's very interesting you say that because the mistake that Christians can sometimes make here is to say, well, clearly Muslims don't believe in the same God or worship the same God as Christians. Because, you know, we believe in a God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, a God who, you know, stepped into history in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And that sounds great. And we look very, we look very smug and happy with that. And then someone comes along and goes, well, hang on a minute. What about our Jewish friends? Because, you know, our Jewish friends don't believe that Jesus was God incarnate. Do we want to say that they're worshipping a false God? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's a, that's a suitable answer. I think the Apostle Paul might have some things to say there. I think half the, the Old Testament might have some things to say there. The approach I take of the book, therefore, is a slightly different approach, David. I say if you look at the characteristics of the God of the Bible, and these are characteristics that appear in the Old and the New Testament. He's yeah. a God who's relational. He walks and talks with Adam and Eve. He appears to Abraham. He appears to Moses. He stepped into history and Jesus, he'll be there in the new heavens and the new earth. He's a God who can be known. You know, look at the prophet Jeremiah said, you know, let the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength, that those who boast boast in this, they understand and know me. Um, he's a God who is holy. Uh, that's there on on both old and new testament he's a god who is love we just talked about the theme of love yes expressed in jesus but also expressed on you know almost every page of the of the old testament go look read a book like hosea and the tremendous love that god has uh for his people and then also he's a god who suffered he's a god who's moved by by our by our by our condition really interesting if you compare the story of noah in the Bible and the Quran, in the Bible, before God sends judgment on creation, you know, it said that God was grieved by what was going on. He was moved and grieved by the by the sin of humanity. And then after uh, the floods, He forms this covenant, this deep commitment with Noah, and then promises never to flood the earth again. Puts the rainbow in the sky. Come to the come to the the Quran's version of that story. There is no grief. There is no heart response. There's simply judgment. And at the end, there's no rainbow. There's no covenant. There's simply if humans do it, if humans sin, I'll do it again. Um, very different views of God. But those five characteristics, David, relational, uh, knowable, love, suffering and holiness. they Our Jewish friends would hold to those two because they are there in the Old Testament as well as the New. The Quran uh, rejects or ignores or redefines every single one of them. So I think if you take that approach, then as a Christian, you can say, I think those five characteristics are most clearly shown in Jesus. But they are also there all over the, 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 Jew, the, Jew, the Hebrew Old Testament and are significant to Jews as well.
0: Yeah, isn't it, did I read somewhere that 75% of the material in the Quran covers the same material that parts of the Bible cover? Is that proportion correct? Um, no,
1: uh, funny enough, you've got, you've got it the wrong way around. It's 25% is and 75% isn't. So you were the right number. Yeah, absolutely. 25% of the Quran is a uh, material that has come in some shape or form, either the Old Testament or the New Testament, or from Jewish or Christian tradition. Um, the phrase that scholars use would be biblicist. It's biblicist material. I referred there to, to Noah, the story of Adam and Eve turns up there are 90 verses in the Quran about Jesus and so on. It didn't come. It didn't come direct. Muhammad didn't have access to the Bible. It came filtered through oral tradition and uh, oral storytelling. But yeah, twenty five percent has its roots in some form of Jewish or Christian background.
0: That is fascinating, Andy. Uh, time is moving on, and we are moving to the end of our time together. So. Just to tell the listeners, if you want more of the stuff that you know, Andy and I have been talking about today, just go to YouTube and put into search Andy Bannister Islam, and there's a ton of material up there where Andy unpacks lots and lots of other material um, that you will find absolutely fascinating. Seeking Allah, finding Jesus, uh is another great resource about Islam. Mm. Anything else out there that folks should be reading or watching Andy?
1: Yeah so those are those are great resources the other uh, the other is a couple two resources I mentioned David if people go to the SOLAS website uh, so SOLAS is the organization I work for that's SOLAS S-O-L-A-S hyphen C-P-C for Centre for Public Christianity.org or just put SOLAS into Facebook. We have lots of uh, kind of videos and articles and pieces on our website some deal with the topics we've dealt with today, so people can go further. And then, what other book recommendation? You know, my heart at the end of the day for people listening to this is not that you would just, you know, fill your head up with more information, but that God a place on your heart. A- a desire to share your faith with any Muslims he brings across your path, and a desire to pray for the Muslim world. And the single best book I know just on how you can share your faith with a Muslim, it's a really practical, down-to-earth book. You don't need to be any kind of theologian. It's it's written at a very simple, straightforward level. It's called Reaching Muslims, uh, a one-stop guide for Christians. Reaching Muslims, a one-stop guide for Christians. And it's by a friend of mine called Nick Chatrath, C-H-A-T-R-A-T-H. Uh, You can find it on on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, Reaching Muslims, a one-stop guide for Christians. Say, very, very practical. It'll help you understand a bit about where Muslims are coming from, but lots of just really good down-to-earth advice about how to build friendships and share Jesus with any Muslims that God brings across your path.
0: Andy thank you so much for giving us your valuable time today that has been a fascinating discussion and I hope folk will corporately or individually just remember our Muslim friends pray that they'll be followers of Jesus that they will see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ especially on the night of power Tuesday the 19th of May Andy thank you so much
1: David you're welcome it's been a, a privilege as always thanks
0: for having me on